Well, good morning, Ridge Point Church. <clears throat> so a few weeks ago, I had jury duty. Yeah, I kind of thought we'd get that, a little bit of that response. Um, now, I, one thing that I've kind of learned in, in that whole experience of jury duty is I think that we kind of all fall into like two different groups, okay? I think the majority of us are in this group of like I, my estimate is somewhere like 70 to 80% of people fall into this group. My wife says it's more like 97%. But it's that group that you do anything you can to get out of going to jury duty, okay? Like you wear the wrong clothes, you say the wrong things. Anything that you can do to try to get out of it as quickly as possible, that's what you're going to do, okay? Now, then there's this other group, you know, my the 20 to 30% or Sherry's 3% that are like me. You know, you're like me. You're kind of the weirdos. And you love it, okay? You, you like it. You find it interesting. You find it fascinating. You learn stuff from doing it. And you, you just, you kind of thrive on it a little bit. And so you're not going to do anything to get out of it. The only thing is that I have noticed this. No matter which group you fall into, whenever you get that summons, a lot of times it's at a really inconvenient time. I mean, that was the case for me a few weeks ago. I, I'd had the summons. I knew about it, you know, but some things were just going on. It was a little crazy and with the family and everything, but yet here it was, and, and I still needed to go. Now, prior to this time, I, I didn't have a whole lot of experience with jury duty. I mean, Here's somebody who likes it and hadn't really, I mean, this was the first time I actually got to sit on a jury. But I noticed something, you know, kind of in going to it, I, I didn't really know what to expect. And I was actually very pleasantly surprised, you know, because I, I hear people say, I got to get out of it. I got to, you know, so I was kind of expecting the worst going into this. But I'll have to admit, when I went, I was very, very pleased with all that I saw. I mean, the people that work and do this, that work with the jurors and work in this system, just phenomenal people. I learned a lot. And I, I think the thing that really kind of caught me off guard was just like the level of like, for lack of a better term, customer service. I mean, you know, I got there. I, I didn't really know where I was going. I got to the parking lot where I was supposed to park, and there were like three guys out there like directing traffic, making sure you got a, a parking place. And then I walked up to the courthouse, and you know you have to go through security, and they were holding everybody outside and letting all the jurors go through first and you know, so that you didn't have to wait too long. And then you went up to the second floor where you're supposed to be, and as soon as you exit the elevator, there's someone standing there telling you where to go and what to do. And just everywhere I went, you had that experience, just pleasant people, just very nice, showing you what to do, even to the point of this. I, I thought this was particularly funny, that they know you don't want to be there, so they kind of tell jokes, making fun of themselves. You know, I, I'm always in favor of a little self-deprecating humor, and they were doing that too. They were like, hey, we know you guys don't want to be here. Just funny jokes that, that I, I don't remember exactly what they said, but just kind of making you feel comfortable being there. And it kind of floored me by the, the whole experience kind of floored me because, you know, I, I'm always looking for that kind of thing because I think, you know, we can learn from those situations, whether it's a church or another business or whatever, we can learn from other people. And so, I, but the thing that really struck me by all of this is, yeah, these people get paid to do this. I mean, this is their job, 
But it, to me, it was like they had taken it to the, kind of the next level. Like they had gone beyond the fact that they were getting a paycheck. And they were actually, they were looking at what they were doing as kind of serving people. In fact, I would say that almost everybody that I ran into had a great deal of passion for serving people. Just in watching what they did and how they interacted with people. And I would say this, because I kind of think, you know, we can always, we, we get in situations like that and we can have really great days. If we, if we love to serve, we can have really phenomenal day, day after day after day, but we can't always, always be on, okay? We can't always get it right. But it seemed to me, and you know, again, I was only there one or two days, but it seemed to me that they were kind of getting this right. And so I'm like, okay, how do they do that? I mean, they, sure, they love to serve. They have a passion for serving. But the people that they interact with don't want to be there. I mean, how do they get beyond that? How do, they, how do they know that almost every person that they're interacting with doesn't want to be there and is trying to figure out a way to get out of there? And it began to click in my mind. I think what it is is not only did they have a passion for serving, but their passion for serving had begun somewhere else. It had begun with a passion for people, for the jurors. It had begun with this passion that they wanted to kind of get into your mind as a juror and think, why don't you want to be here? Why don't, what, what, what can we do to try to get beyond why you don't want to be here? What can we do to serve you in such a way that, you know, sure, it's inconvenient, but you still want to come and you want to do your part? And so I realized in that that, Sure, they had a passion to serve, but their passion to serve had begun with a passion for people. And I think that's the case for us as well. If we're going to be a servant, we're going to have a servant's heart, we're going to have a passion to serve, whether it's in the church or whether it's in our community, whether it's in our home or whether it's in our family, whatever that looks like. If we're going to have a passion to serve, to get it right, to do it all the time, to kind of get that passion all the time, We have to begin with a passion for the people who are involved, the people that we're serving. Now, the passage that we're going to look at today, now we, you know, if you're just joining us today, and I I see kind of a lot of new faces, it's going to be a little different day, but we, if you're just joining us today, we're in the second week of a series called Summertime. Now, if you missed last week, that's okay, because the summertime series, none of the sermons are really related to each other, okay? There are a bunch of independent topics uh, that we kind of, like, we're just, what we're trying to do is kind of encourage you for the summer. We just thought we'd come up, you know, summertime, we thought we'd have some fun decorations, have a little bit of fun with it. But the sermons themselves are not interrelated like we would normally do with our series. And part of the reason that we did this is because the last few series that we've been doing, they're just kind of hard-hitting, you know, just tough topics things that cause us to deal with some really tough issues in our life. And so we thought, let's, let's try to be an encouragement. And so that's kind of what we're setting out to do with these, these sermons. And, and that's really what I set out as I was studying for this and preparing for this. That's what I really kind of set out to do, even though this is, to me, it's a little bit of a tough topic. And the passage that we're going to look at today is actually, I think, a very interesting passage. It's always been one of my favorites. It's actually found in John 13. So if you have your your Bible, you want to go ahead and turn there, you can do that. We're going to have the verses up in the screen in just a minute. But John 13 is, I love the the gospel of John anyway. That's just a a great book. In fact, if, if you're not super familiar with the Bible, 
kind of doesn't know how it's laid out or worked out. Let me give you just a little rough understanding of what we're looking at here. The Bible's broken up into two parts. You got the Old Testament, you got the New Testament. In the New Testament, the beginning of it is the first, the first four verses, or first four books, excuse me, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are what we call the Gospels, all right? The Gospels are basically the books that tell the story of Jesus' life. You know, they tell about his birth, a little bit about his childhood, and then, you know, mostly about his ministry. They're mostly about his ministry. The particular passage that we're going to read today is not found in any of the other Gospels. It's just found in this Gospel of John. And it actually begins, the passage begins with Jesus and his disciples at what we call the Last Supper. You know, you probably, you know, even if you're not totally familiar with all of the stories about Jesus, you may have heard that. You know, there's a famous painting called The Last Supper that depicts this event. It's this Passover meal that Jesus has with his 12 disciples right before he's about to, be re- um, about to be arrested and crucified and beaten and all of the stuff that's involved in that. So that's where we're, we're starting. We're starting with this, this meal that they have. But this particular passage, I think part of the reason, now I don't know why exactly it's not in the other Gospels, but I think one of the things that's so interesting about this passage is it's extremely awkward. It's a very awkward passage. It's like you read it and you go, man, it must have been really weird to be there. It must have been really awkward to be in that room when all of this stuff was going down. And even as I was studying it, I'm thinking, oh, I, I mean, like, there must have been points of silence and just, I, I, I don't know. It, it's awkward. But I also think this. I think that this particular passage is probably the second greatest example of Jesus' passion for serving others, his passion for people, okay? Short of, the only other one I think that's greater is the actual passage where Jesus is arrested and he's beaten and he's crucified and then he's resurrected. Obviously, that's his greatest example of being a servant, of having passion for us as people. But to me, this one's kind of, you know, like... Obviously, there's a huge gap between the first one and the next one. But this one, to me, is like the second greatest. And I think you'll see that as we kind of get into it. So we're going to kind of jump into it, and then we're going to kind of take... It's a a rather long passage, but we're going to kind of take it apart a little bit. So John 13, we're just going to start in verse 1, and we're going to kind of go through this a little bit. It says, verse 1, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come... To depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So we kind of get this, you know, first of all, we're introduced to this idea that this is the feast of the Passover, that, you know, the disciples are gathering for this last supper, and that Jesus knows what's coming. And so he's kind of preparing his disciples. You know, he's going to show this kind of like his last act of, you know, short of, going and dying on the cross, his kind of last act of love, his last opportunity to share with these disciples. And he goes on, verse, in verse 2, it says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, before we go on and, and, and actually look at, you know, kind of the, the point of what we're talking about this, 
I want you to notice something. In this meal or in this room where Jesus is having this last meal with his disciples, it's 12, 12 men, 12 disciples. And in those verses, it tells us that at this point, Judas is still in the room. Judas is the disciple who betrays him. He's the one that's going to lead to Jesus being rested, you know, Jesus being beaten, crucified, all of that stuff. He's the one that's going to put this into motion. At least, humanly speaking, he's the one that's going to put this into motion. So what Jesus is about to do, he does with all 12 of his disciples, including this guy who he knows is going to betray him. So at the end of verse 4, it says, He rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Verse 5, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus washes his disciples' feet. They finish eating, and he basically stops where they're at in supper, doesn't really say anything, and just begins to kind of go around the room and wash his disciples' feet. Awkward, don't you think? I mean, I I don't know about you, but feet are not, they're, they're gross, okay? I don't want to wash my feet, okay? All right? Let alone wash someone else's feet, all right? And yet, here Jesus begins around the room and begins to wash their feet. Again, all of them, not just, you know, the 11 guys who he knew were on his side and, you know, that he had this passion for. The other guy, too, the guy who he knew was about to betray him, the guy who he had a passion for, but he knew was about to betray him was about to stab him in the back. And so here he goes around the room, washing feet. Now, you know, I made fun of the, you know, the idea that feet are gross and everything, but I want you to understand something because, you know, for all of our weirdness with feet, think about their situation. I mean, for the most part, most of us have shoes on today and, you know, maybe we have flip-flops, so maybe, you know, we got a little extra dirt in there. But these guys open-toed shoes and walked everywhere in dirt. So their feet were extra gross, if you want to put it that way, okay? I mean, they would have been a lot dirtier than what we would know as feet. And yet here Jesus is, their, their teacher, this guy that they have been doing life with, for, for, who's been leading them for three years, down on his hands and knees, washing their feet. Now, as we move into the next part, I, I, I just love, you know, if, if I have a favorite disciple, it's probably Peter, uh, just because he's like the complete opposite of me. He, he just, like, says stuff. Like, just no filter. He's not afraid to say whatever. And so that's where we pick up. It says in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter. So Jesus got to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? So Peter kind of stops him. He, he says the thing that probably all the disciples were thinking and feeling at this point. But he says, Jesus, wait a minute. 
wait a minute, what are you doing? Why, I mean, are, do you really want to wash my feet? I mean, do, is that what you want to do? And Jesus answered him, and he said, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So Peter says, Are you sure you, you want to wash my feet? Are you sure that's what you do? And Jesus says, Yeah, I want to do this. And you may not completely understand it right now. You're not going to totally, you might grasp a little bit of what I'm trying to accomplish right now, but you're not going to fully grasp it until later, until after I've been arrested, until after I've been crucified and resurrected, and then maybe even after I'm gone and, and off of this earth. That's when you're going to maybe begin to understand what I'm doing. Verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if you do not wash, you have no share with me. So Peter says, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus kind of comes back with, you got to let me do it or you're no share with me. Now we could get into what all that means. And and for our purposes today, you know, we're not going to do that. But basically Jesus says, you've got to let me wash your feet. And this is, again, this is what I love about Peter, because it's like a switch flips in his head. Because he, he says, no, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. You're not going to wash my feet. When Jesus insists, Peter turns around and he says, uh, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So Peter just kind of goes the complete opposite. Hey, by the way, if you're going to wash my feet, why don't you get my hands, get my head, just clean the whole body, okay? Just completely turn around from what he had just said to Jesus. But that was Peter. Just complete switch. And then Jesus says, uh, let's see, so verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you is clean. Verse 11, For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. So in other words, if I wash your feet, it's kind of a significant thing that you're all clean, except for, of course, Judas, who is still in the room. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Last verse, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So here, after Jesus is done, after he's done washing their feet, he offers a little explanation. He says, you know, knowing again that they're probably not going to fully grasp this until later, much later on. He says, you're right. I'm your teacher. I'm your leader. I'm the person you look to. But if I'm willing to do this, if I'm willing to get down on my hands and knees and to wash your feet, then you ought also to do that for each other. I'm setting an example for you. 
that that's the way that you should treat each other. That's the way that you should love each other. That if you have a passion to serve, then you should also have a passion for each other. Your passion to serve begins with a passion for each other, a passion for people. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, I get this, Chris. You're kind of, you're going in this direction. You're trying to encourage us to serve. That, you know, you're saying, you know, if, if a passion to serve begins with a passion for people, I get that. But what if I, you know, Chris, what if I turn that on its head and I say this, you know, the reason I don't have a passion to serve is because I don't have a passion for people. I mean, seriously, have you met some people? They're not fun, okay? They're not nice, all right? I don't have a passion for them. I don't like people, okay? They have smelly feet, remember? But if we say that, if we sit here and we say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm following Jesus, I'm following Christ, then we, we can't make that argument, okay? We can't say, I don't have a passion for people and say that I'm following Jesus, that I'm, now I know some of us in here because of the way that we've kind of created this environment and so forth, that some of us are still investigating and maybe we're not necessarily following Jesus. But for those of us who are, who say that we are, then we have to have a passion for people. We have to figure out how to have that passion for people. In fact, if you look a little further down in this same passage in in, uh, chapter 13, starting with verse 34, it says this. Jesus kind of after he has dismissed Judas from the room and so forth, he says, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you say you're following Jesus and you're one of his disciples, then you should have that love for one another. You should have that passion for people. Jesus displayed it in that room. Here's Judas sitting there. He knows in just a few minutes he's going to go turn him in to the authorities. And yet Jesus has that passion for him, that willingness to serve him and to wash his feet. I would venture to say that none of us right now know of a situation in their life where somebody, a friend of theirs that they've been living three years with, is going to begin to go and just turn them into the authorities right now. But yet Jesus found that passion. He found what he needed to be able to do that for this man. So a passion to serve or a passion to serve begins with that passion for people. Now, as I was kind of preparing and studying for this, and the, this particular message probably developed a lot different than what, what I would normally do. We, normally we know topics ahead of time, and I kind of begin to think along those terms. And, and this was, I was kind of left here to kind of, you know, develop this on my own and come up with this idea. And as I was led to, as God kind of led me to this passage and began to show me this, this whole idea of what Jesus was doing with washing of feet, as I was studying, all of a sudden, I just felt like God saying, hey, if you're going to read this passage, you got to wash somebody's feet. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when you get like one of those messages from God, like one of those things you don't want to do, like I go, okay, God, I'm going to pray about that a little bit, okay? Let me pray about that. I, I think that was you, God, but I'm not really sure. 
So let me pray about it some more. So I prayed about it some more. And after a while, I got this confirmation that this is, you're supposed to wash somebody's feet. I'm like, God, no, it's awkward. I don't want to do that. There's all these people out here. There's a bunch of people here that maybe it's their first time. And they're like, do they do this all the time? No, we don't. Okay? We don't. I promise you. Okay? You don't have to, you know, if you come back next week, we're not going to force you to get up on stage and wash your feet. Okay? But I just really felt like that that's what we were supposed to do. That that's what God was leading me to do. And, you know, as I was sharing with JJ, you know, that this is what I just felt we were supposed to do. He, he suggested, you know, who to ask. And imagine that conversation. That's a little awkward conversation on the phone. Hey, uh, I'm going to wash somebody's feet on Sunday. Do you mind if you would just get up there and let me wash your feet? Yeah, it's not a fun conversation. But I really felt like that's what we were supposed to do. In fact, I told my wife, I said, I don't know why. I don't know why God said to do this. I said, maybe the only reason is this, because we had this conversation this week. I have a five-year-old son, and we had the conversation that sometimes God tells us to do stuff, and we don't really want to do it, but yet we're supposed to do it. We might not want it. We might not want to do it. We might not like it, but yet we're supposed to do it. And so we had that conversation this week, me thinking about this particular situation. So that's what we're going to do. Um, I've never, never washed, you know, short of this morning, never washed anybody's feet uh, before. I'd, I'd never even participated in this before. Um, but I, this is what I think we're supposed to do. So I actually invited um, Jeff Banfield. He's, um, Jeff, you can come on up here. But uh, um, if you don't know a lot, a little bit about how our church works, um, we're a staff-led church. So the staff makes kind of the day-to-day decisions of the church. That means JJ and, and I and Ashley and so forth. You can just sit down there. Um, but we also have like a, a, a group of trustees that kind of, you know, um, they oversee what's going on and just they kind of make sure that we're kind of on the right track and that kind of thing. We call them like the guardrails for the church. And uh, so I invited a couple of the trustees. Um, Jeff is one of our trustees. And so I invited him to participate in this. And um, again, I don't know. I don't know why. We're just going to do it. So um, I'm going to wash his feet. Um, there's going to be some music playing, and it's going to get awkward for a minute.
until the first service, I wasn't really sure how I was going to react to this. And and I'm still, you know, I, I think I'm still kind of processing that and, you know, um, what that means. And, I, you know, but I just as I was preparing and I was studying, I was, one of the things that I read reminded me that in the Old Testament, if you go back into the Old Testament and you look at some of the scriptures that talk about the Jewish law, um, specifically Leviticus and some of those passages. And if you read through those, there's kind of a, a theme that you kind of see. And the theme is this, that it, it talks a lot about the idea of being ritually clean and then this idea of being unclean. That um, you have things that are ritually clean, usually because the priests have done something to make them ritually clean. But then you have these things that are unclean. And there's all kinds of things that can make things unclean. You know, you can, um, it talks about touching a dead body could make you unclean. And, and there's kind of this, the, the theme that you see as you read through these passages is that you begin with, or kind of the flow of the energy is this, that things are unclean. There are things that are unclean. And that when they touch things that are clean, those things then become unclean. And that's kind of the flow that you always see in the Old Testament, that something's unclean, it touches something that's clean, and then that clean thing becomes unclean. And then you have to go through these things where you, these processes with the priests and so forth to make something clean again, to get it ritually clean. And as you look in the New Testament, we begin to see a change in that flow. Because when Jesus arrives on the scene, Jesus' arrival changes that flow. Because here's Jesus, who is clean, perfect life, died on a cross for our sins. Jesus, who is clean, comes along and we're unclean. And he touches us and we become clean. And the flow changes. And you see that all throughout the New Testament. I'm not just talking about salvation. I mean, you see it in other passages where Jesus is walking along and there's this woman who has this bleeding disorder and she touches his garment and she's healed and she's made clean. The people that he heals, he touches them and they become clean. This passage where these disciples, these guys who've been traveling with them for him for three years... He washes their feet. And they become clean through him. And here's what I believe. I believe that, now I'm not saying I, I didn't do this or teach this passage to say that you all need to go wash feet. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Not at all. What I'm saying is that everywhere around us, we have opportunities to serve others. We have those opportunities that present themselves daily, whether, again, whether it's in our church or whether it's in our community or whether it's in our home, our family, whatever. We have those opportunities to serve each other. And here's what's happening in that serving. You are continuing, as a Christ follower, when you do that, when you have that passion for people and then have that passion for serving, what you're doing is you're participating in that flow of energy that Jesus brought. Because 
when Jesus came on the scene and he was clean, basically the purpose of Jesus coming was to redeem this world. The world is broken. It's hurting. We're sinful. And so Jesus came to redeem this world, to bring about cleanness. Now, one of these days, this world will be completely redeemed. Now, I don't know when that's going to be and how God's going to do that, how that's all going to work out, but it will happen. But until then, as Christ followers, we participate in that flow that Jesus started. As we serve others, it's not that we're cleaning them. It's through God's power, through Jesus' power, that we are slowly helping in that redemption process. So when we have that passion to serve, and we take those opportunities to serve, we're participating in that process of moving from things being unclean to being clean. So as we leave today, I want you to just think about that because what you're doing as you serve, you're, a, you're signifying what Jesus has done for you. That flow where he stepped into your world, your broken world, and made you clean. As you serve, again, it's not that you're doing it, but as you serve, as you're doing it in the name of Jesus, he's using you in that redemption process. He is moving things from being unclean to clean. So, again, when we have that passion to serve, we have to begin it with a passion for people. We have to have that passion for people, that passion that Scripture tells us to have so that we can participate in that process that Jesus began. Let's pray.